One of the great things about the book of Psalms is there's so many of them that you read back through and you find the ones you've forgotten about, some hidden gems in the Psalms. And this was one of those for me. I hadn't read Psalm 46 in a while. And as I reread it, I thought, man, this is a really, really good Psalm. So I'm, I'm thrilled to be back in it with you. This was Martin Luther's favorite Psalm. You know, Luther, great reformer, theologian. He was also a hymn writer. He wrote one of our best known hymns, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. The theology and many of the words for that hymn come straight from Psalm 46. What a privilege we have to dive into this text together. Now, this is one of those psalms where we don't know for sure the circumstances when it was composed, but there are some clues that give us a hint, to give us some ideas. And it is likely that it was written during one of the great sieges against Jerusalem. You know, Jerusalem, um, a number of times throughout its history, either survived or in, in a couple cases succumbed to a siege from an enemy army. There's one such siege that matches the words of this psalm particularly well. Many scholars think it might have been this occasion that this psalm was written for. It was uh, during the reign of King Hezekiah. It was 701 B.C., give you some historical context. This is uh, when the Assyrian Empire had just risen to power recently. This was the greatest military the world had ever seen up to this point in time. Assyria came in and, and swept away the 10 northern tribes, which were the northern king, uh, the northern kingdom rather, the, the, the nation of Israel, so to speak. And around 720, they were gone now. So 701, almost 20 years later, you just had Jerusalem, you know, the southern nation of Judah, which is two tribes, including the capital city of Jerusalem, that had held on for these years. King Hezekiah made the new Assyrian uh, king angry. And so the king of Assyria gathered his massive army, came marching down, surrounded Jerusalem, cut off their food supply. I mean, this is how you would starve out a city back then. And I want you to put yourself in the shoes of a Hebrew family the night before the, you heard the invasion was imminent. You're hungry, hadn't had a lot to eat, you're afraid. Uh, warfare back then was a lot different, obviously. You could look out over the wall of the city and see the campfires of the enemy, thousands and thousands of campfires all around you. You could hear their carousing the night before. You could, you could smell their food roasting on their fire, even as you're starving. And you knew the end was near. In fact, uh, your, your thought must have been, if God does not intervene, this may be the last night of freedom that we have. So you gather your family close to you and you pray. You pray to the God of the Hebrews, whom you believe is the only God, the one true God. Your prayer spills over into singing. And you know, back then, the, what we have in the book of Psalms, their prayers and their songs. They used to pray their songs. And this is the hymn book that we have in the book of Psalms. And Psalm 46 was the psalm you wanted, the psalm you needed for this exact circumstance. And it indeed may very well have been written as this attack was ramping up and was imminent as the city was trying to be starved out. So let's take a look now, Psalm chapter 46, and we're gonna go a verse at a time. We'll hit almost all the verses. We won't have time to hit a couple, but I'm gonna hit the highlights of it. Beginning in verse one, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. When you're in trouble, especially if you're surrounded by an enemy, literal or metaphorical enemy, you need three things. You need a place of protection or a refuge. You need the strength to endure or fight. And there's one other thing you need. You need an ally on your side. You need help. 
what verse one here is teaching us is that God is all the things that we need when trouble comes our way. You don't have to come up with your own defenses and your own resources. It's the God that you believe in that is both your place of hiding, your place of protection, your inner strength to endure or fight, whatever God calls you to in this situation. And then he himself is your help. What I love about this phrase is God is not a distant help. He's a present help, a very present help. So this is the core idea of the Psalm. God's presence enables us to relax during trouble. Easier said than done, right? I love the fact that God is present in our trouble. The kind of help that God offers is not the faraway kind of help. We, we don't hear God calling to us from a distance saying, hang in there, you can do it. It's not that God left us some supplies and ammunition and says, this is all that you're gonna need. I, I'm not gonna be here with you in the fight, but, but, but if, if you read these instructions and, and do it, then you can survive. That's not the God that we serve. The God that we serve is a very present help in trouble. Whether you know it or not, whether you sense it or not, whether you feel it or not, God's word tells you when trouble comes your way, God's in the middle of it. God's in the midst of it. It's one of the reasons that I think the incarnation is so beautiful. God did not stay above the trouble of the earth. He entered into it. And so we have the presence of God in our time of trouble. So here we go, right in verse one. It's proclaiming, you have everything you need for the day of trouble. And remember, this is likely written around the time or for the occasion that they're looking all around and there's trouble all around us. You know, this, this army is so much more powerful than our army is, but God is our refuge and strength. God is a very present help in trouble. Now, if you believe that is true, it should change the way you experience the trouble. You should feel differently. What you believe in here ends up affecting your emotions, your feelings. So that's in verse two. Therefore, very important word, ties us back to verse one. We will not fear. If God really is who we say he is, the logical conclusion is you do not need to fear. And then just to reinforce this, the psalmist gives these four those statements, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. What's this all about? He's intentionally going to the worst case scenario. It's like, no matter what happens, even if, you know, we might say in our vernacular, even if all hell breaks loose, you don't have to fear. It's the worst case scenario because the psalmist knows if he can remind you that even if the absolute worst thing imaginable were to happen, even then you don't have to be afraid. Your fear falls somewhere just short of the worst possible thing happening, right? Now, it may be harder for us to connect to this worst case scenario than it was for the ancient people. Let me explain. Why does the psalmist say the worst possible scenario is the earth giving way, the mountains moved into the heart of the sea, the seas roaring and foaming and the mountains trembling? Because the way they viewed the universe, there were two great elements of creation that stand, stood opposed to each other, the earth and the sea. This is how ancient people, not just the Hebrews, viewed the universe. There was the earth and there was the sea. The earth was good, the sea was bad. The earth was organized and solid and you could count on it and it was a place where life can flourish. 
The sea was a place of chaos and death and the, the evil monsters come from the sea. I mean, this is ancient cosmology, okay? And, and now what God had taught the Hebrew people is that God ruled over even the waters. Think about Genesis chapter one, the creation account. The earth was formless and void. The spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep, the face of the waters. And then God begins speaking. And what does God do? He separates, he, he pushes the chaos over here and he makes dry land over here. He, he, he gives boundaries to the water. He says, this far shall you go and no further. You know, that, that comes later in Job. But this is the idea. God is bringing order into the chaos. He's creating dry land from the sea. So now go back to Psalm 46. What the psalmist is saying is, even if somehow evil were to win somehow, even if God allowed the ordered creation to be reversed, even then he'd still be in charge. Even then it'd be a part of his plan somehow. Even then there's no reason to fear because God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Do you hear that just the total faith and conviction that the psalmist is calling the people to in a time of trouble? I mentioned this was Martin Luther's favorite psalm. Um, if you've ever studied his life, he had a really hard life. He went through some terrible days. And when he was at his lowest times, he was known to say, let us sing the 46th Psalm and let the devil do his worst. That's the idea here in the first few verses of Psalm 46. No matter what comes, we will not fear. Now, I've been uh, thinking a little bit about this phrase, even though the earth gives way. Raise your hand if you've ever lived through an earthquake. Small, big, anything. All right, all right. Keep your hands up. These are all our Californians. <laughs> we have more than I knew. <laughs> Glad you're here. Okay, Glad you're here. You can put your hands down. <laughs> Cheap shot, maybe, no. I've not lived through an earthquake. And, and those of you with your hands up, I'd, I'd be interested to hear your earthquake stories, actually. But here's what people have told me that have lived through earthquakes. It is one of the most unsettling experiences. Now, e even if nothing really, you don't never get hurt, there's something even psychologically about the thing that your body has been trained to count on. I mean, think about this. I'm 46. For 46 years, my body has naturally assumed what's underneath me is solid. I can count on it. And now, other, now also I feel that start shaking. That's, that's terrifying. That's terrifying. Now, even if you haven't lived through a literal earthquake, which, which I haven't, all of us have experienced things like this. The one person I thought I could count on. The one thing I thought I was sure of. The one foundation of my life that I've built it on all these years. You see, we live in a time in world history where it just feels like foundations are crumbling around us. Things that our society used to just all be on the same page suddenly we're not. Th things that our parents and grandparents just took for granted that, yeah, you know, everybody just kind of believes this. And you can't count on those things anymore. Some the philosophers are calling this the, the, the age where we're moving beyond foundationalism. Well, what does that mean, beyond foundationalism? The, the foundations that, that everybody just sort of assumed 
We're here in our society. We're moving beyond foundationalism. As Christians, we must never move beyond foundations. What are our foundations? Yeah, I heard you whisper, Jesus, the, the, the word of God. Now, oh my goodness, what a message for our time. Even though the earth gives way, even though everybody around us says there's no foundation you can stand on, even if, even if that, that turns out where you're like, I don't really know, but I know God's our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. You see, this is a great psalm for our day. Now, do you notice the little word here at the end, Selah? We've been talking about this word throughout the month or throughout this summer. We don't know exactly, it may have been a musical term, but we believe it gave a time of pause, a time to reflect. And so it occurs three times in this psalm, and each time I'm going to give us a moment to pause and reflect. And, and here's what I want you to think about in this first Selah moment. What is your nightmare scenario? What is your earth, even if the earth falls into the sea? What, what is the worst possible thing that you, you can imagine could happen to you or your family or your situation? And are you able to say, even if that thing happens, I will not fear. Selah. Pause, consider, reflect. Let's go to verses four and five. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The, the her is referring to the city, the city of God. City of God, of course, reference to Jerusalem. Imagine, again, uh, you're surrounded, you're under siege. What do you need? You need food, of course, but what do you need even more than food? Yeah, water. If you don't have access to fresh water, if the enemy is able to cut that off or poison it somehow, you will not last. You can't withstand a siege. Now, what's interesting here is, is painting a picture of, of a city with a great river moving through it. Notice the imagery is still on water. But it has shifted, verses one through three, the chaos of the seas, verses four and five, the life-giving river. What is the difference between a river and seas? The river has boundaries. The river flows in a direction. The river's been, been contained, so to speak, and it's useful. You, you can water your crops, you can drink from it, you can have transportation and energy. Rivers are wonderful. Seas are scary, rivers are wonderful. Again, this is the, the way the ancient uh, people would, would think about this. Here's what's really interesting. Is there a river? Anyone ever been to Jerusalem? Is there a river flowing through Jerusalem? There is not. I'll answer that for you. There's not a river flowing through Jerusalem. There will one day be a great river flowing through Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem that, we, that is described in, in Revelation 21 and 22. Now, what, what would this mean? Is this wishful thinking? I wish we had a river running through the city of God. Or, or is this prophetic thinking? Someday there will be a river running through the city of God. That's a good possibility. There's another possibility that, that the river that's being referred to is a metaphor for the presence of God. We may not have a mighty river running through our city, but what we do have is God. God, look at verse five. God's in the midst of her. I, I like that interpretation. There is one more possibility that I really like. By the way, you don't have to choose. 
I think there can be a combination of going on with what this river is about. But this will take about five minutes, but it's worth it, okay? I'm going to talk about some interesting history and archaeology, okay? And if you're not into that, you can kind of tune out. But I do think it's worth it. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you when to wake up again. Now, no river in Jerusalem, never has been. At the time of King Hezekiah, you know where they got their fresh water from? A little bitty spring, the only spring in and around Jerusalem, the spring of Gihon, which, which happened to bubble up on the outer slope of the city, just outside the city walls. That's bad news if you're gonna be under siege. It's outside the walls. Now, they built an outer wall to protect it, but because the spring was on the slope, it was very difficult and it couldn't be well protected. So if your fresh water is vulnerable, there's no way you can survive this siege. So what did King Hezekiah do in preparation for the Assyrian siege? He dug a tunnel. And in the Bible, we read about King Hezekiah, Hezekiah digging a tunnel from the Gihon Spring, which is on the slope on the outer side of, of, of the city, under the ground to redirect the water inside the inner city walls to the Pool of Siloam, which was much better protected. We read about this in uh, 2 Kings 20.20. The rest of the deeds of Hezekiah and all his might and how he made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of Chronicles? And they are. In 1837, archaeologists found the tunnel. And I get so excited when like things that, that you know, the skeptics say is like, oh, the, you know, the Old Testament, you can't trust what it says. And then they find it and it's exact, it connects this spot with this spot, exactly like the Bible says. They found this in 1837 and, and this gets even better. In fact, let me show you what they found. I've got an image on the screen here. Uh, this is an illustration of Jerusalem. The Gihon Spring is here. You can't really tell, but all this is sloped down this way. This is the outer wall they tried to build, but this was really hard to protect. They, they, they connected this tunnel. It, it kind of was serpentine. It went through the city. In fact, we now know, and I'll tell you why we know in a minute. Well, they had one team of diggers that started this way and one team that started this way because they had to do this in haste. They kind of miraculously met in the middle. We don't even know how, that, how they were able to pull that off with their technology. When, here's what gets amazing to me. When they found the tunnel in 1837, guess what they found inside the tunnel? A plaque that described the day that the two met. And the Hebrew writing, they can date it according to how the letters were, were written, the exact time of Hezekiah. Now, by the way, if you ever get to go to Israel, and I encourage you to go to Israel, we're, we're gonna start going every two years. We just went this year, we're gonna go again in 2024. If you're interested, come talk to me sometime. I'll put you on a list to get more information. You can start here, you can walk through this tunnel. There's still water in it to this day. It comes out about right here. And you wade through the tunnel all the way around. I, I, I wanna say it's like 1,700 feet long. You can see the place where it meets right here. You put your hands on the chisel marks that these you know, these, these workers did as they came, and then you come out on this side, and we'll do a little teaching right here by the Pool of Sloan. It's marvelous. That's my little sales pitch for Israel. But here, here's what I want to say. I want you now to put yourself back into the, the, the shoes of this family that's terrified because you know you're about to be attacked the next morning. This is the psalm you want. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Where's the river? From their perspective, beneath them. 
God put a river inside the earth to bubble up fresh water that they were able to direct safely inside the city. That's a miracle. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Now, you start to see these pieces come together. Okay, you can wake up the non-archaeology people, whatever, you can wake up. But, but I, I think those dots are so helpful to connect in this. Now let's go on and see what happens in this psalm. Uh, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. So it now moves from, okay, well, what if the earth were to dissolve to even if all the nations all around us were to rage against us and all the kingdoms that we thought we could make sense of and understand in our world, even if they all tottered, here, here's who's in charge, God. In fact, all he has to do is utter his voice and the earth melts. It turns out God is the only one capable of melting the earth. And he will do it in his time and by his word. He doesn't even have to lift a finger, he just speaks. Derek Kidner, a commentator on this psalm, wrote this. God's voice will be as decisive in dissolving the world as it was in creating it. Verse seven reminds us who is with us. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The Lord of hosts is the title we use when we think of God as the commanding general of the heavenly armies. There has never been any military, including our own or any enemy that's ever wanted to threaten us today. No nuclear weapon, no power conceived that could do any injury to the armies of heaven. And our God is the Lord of those armies. This last word I'm gonna allow you to focus on with this prompt. Let's consider and pause. Let's, let's take this Selah moment for a minute. Here's what I want you to consider. If the one whose voice can melt the earth is with you, who can be against you? Let's consider this. We're gonna skip verses eight to nine. I wanna get to verse 10, the most well-known verse of this psalm. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Oftentimes this verse is quoted out of context. I wanna put it in context this morning. We just heard back here in verse six, he utters his voice. Don't miss the connection. What does the voice say? Quote, be still and know that I am God. This is the voice of God speaking that can melt the earth. The point of view changes in verse 10 from third person narrative to God himself speaking his voice. 
this happens from time to time in the Psalms. It's something to pay attention to. I, I like the fact that we get the quotations here in our English translation to kind of help us see it. This is God's voice. What is God saying? Be still. Now, I had always thought that the, the Hebrew translation of be still in this context was something like, shh, little one. You know, rocking a baby. It's like, shh, 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 be still. Not exactly. I did a word study. It's one word in Hebrew that's translated be still. You know what the word literally means? This is kind of weird, but then when you understand it, you'll be like, oh. The word literally means relax your hand. Relax your hand. Well, how was it used in that context? If you have a grip on something, a combatant, maybe you're, you're wrestling, maybe a, a weapon that you're fighting, the command was, relax your hand, or, or we might say, release. Loosen your grip. Be still. Why, why would we loosen our grip over the troubles around us, over our need to fight, maybe even over our, our, our combatant posture with God? Because surely God, if he's in the midst of this, didn't he have something to do with the trouble? I'm not happy with him. And in the midst of all the swirling around us, we hear the voice of God say, relax, release. What I love about this idea is you can connect it to the voice of the second person of the Trinity in Mark chapter four, who stood on a little boat that was about to be overcome by a different kind of trouble, a storm that was raging, and Jesus shouts to the storm the same concept. It's, it's Greek instead of Hebrew, but he says the same thing. Be still, stop it, release your grip, storm. You have no power. Be still. What I also love about this phrase, when you understand it this way, is you can hear it two different ways depending on your posture toward God. If you're fundamentally in opposition toward God, and aren't we all sometimes? In fact, you start your life fundamentally in opposition to God. And then at some point, when you put your faith in Christ, you find peace with God through Christ. But even after that, where sometimes the posture of our heart is just sort of against God. So I'm not happy with you right now, God. It's, it's, I don't trust you right now, God. I'm angry at you right now, God. And aren't we all at those places in our lives? God can handle that, by the way. It can be very healthy to express that to him. But if that's the fundamental posture of your heart toward God right now, is sort of in opposition to God, then you can hear this be still. And, and it, it's, it's, it's a powerful yet gentle command from God to say, release your grip. Stop fighting me. Know that I am God. God will be patient with you. He will allow you to wrestle him as, as long as you want to. But in the end, you will know that he is God. So the voice to you this morning is, is kind, but it's strong. Surrender. Release. If the posture of your heart is fundamentally aligned with God this morning, as best as you're able to, okay, imperfectly, yes, 
then you might, you might hear it in a, in a different way. You, you might hear the same words, be still. And it means release your grip and, and relax. Like, let me handle this storm. Let me fight for you. You don't need to pick up your weapon. You don't need to grab on with such a hard grip. Just relax your hand and know that I am God. He goes on, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And again, you'll hear those two lines differently depending on your posture toward God. If you're fundamentally in opposition toward God, it's gonna rile something. Why is God so selfish that he wants to be exalted among the nations? I don't know that I wanna serve that kind of God. If your posture is aligned with God as best as you know how, you, you might say, oh, God, would you please be exalted among the nations? You're the only one I trust. You're the only one that is worthy to be exalted among the nations. I'm certainly not. Again, I really like what Derek Kidner wrote. He's got such a way with words. Listen to this. God's firm intention to be exalted is enough to arouse the resentment of the proud, but the longing and resolve of the humble and also their renewed confidence. Let these words this morning renew your confidence in God's strength and power. He will be exalted among the nations. He will be exalted in the earth. The last verse is a repeat of verse seven. It's the, the refrain that comes back, re reminding of the, of the main idea that this powerful God is with you. He's a very present help. The God of Jacob is our fortress, and it ends with this Selah. I'm gonna guide us through this Selah. It's gonna be a little more extended, um, and, and here's how I wanna set, set up this reflection time that I'm gonna give to us. You ever thought about what you lose when you get big, when you, when you grow up? Uh, I'm in my mid-40s, and I, I tend to think of growing up as past tense. Uh, most of the adults in the room would tend to think of growing up as past tense, but the reality is we never fully do. In fact, there seems to be something in, in Jesus that's calling us to childlike faith. And maybe, maybe in the past you kind of scoffed at that. I don't want to be like a child. I'm, I'm, I'm past that. But I want to ask you to consider, to think about this. What do you lose when you're no longer a child? Well, you lose innocence. You lose this sort of sense that you're small. Maybe you lose laughter and silliness sometimes. I think one of the most significant things that we can lose as we grow up is feeling safe in our smallness. It's like knowing we're small and being okay with being small. I think this is the invitation of the psalm. Remember you're small, but you're safe. Think back for, for all of us grownups and maybe even kids in the room too, think back if you can remember this, the feeling of knowing there's someone nearby who's with you, who cares for you that is stronger, that is powerful, that is, that is up to the moment. Someone who, who knows more than you do, someone who has the answers, someone who's unmoved by what just seems confusing and chaotic to you, they're unmoved by it. 
And at the same time, this person, they're, they're stronger, they're powerful, and yet you know they care and they're with you. Do you remember what that feels like to be a kid in that sense? Some of you had that disrupted at early ages for various reasons, but, but I want you to try to grab on to that memory or, or, or what that memory should be. And I'm thinking for many in the room, it may be a long time since you've felt that. Psalm 46 is an invitation to remember you're small and feel safe in your smallness. To move toward God and put your small size against his power. To hear him speak these words to you, be still and know that I am God. And here's what you'll find. In the presence of God's greatness, you'll be able to relax in your smallness. I want to guide us through an exercise to help us with this. You know, the, the book that we've been working through, Rob Howard's book, Morning, Noon, and Night, has spiritual exercises of every psalm that he, he wrote about. And there's a, a lot more psalms in that book than what we've done. I encourage you to work through them even after the series. But at the end of, of his thoughts on Psalm 46, he, he guides through this exercise on, on page 80 and 81 of the book. And I wanna just guide us through it right now. So the thing about exercises are they stretch you a little bit. So I'm gonna guide you through a prayer and I wanna stretch you just a little bit. I'm not gonna call anybody out. You're not gonna have any attention on you at all. But, but it is something that, that if you engage it this morning, is gonna stretch your faith I think. And, and I think that's going to be really helpful for you and, and healthy. Um, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lead you through a personal prayer that you're going to just pray to yourself. I'm going to give you some prompts. Most times at fellowship, when we lead you in prayer, it's a corporate prayer and we're all praying the same thing silently together as the leader is leading us. This time it's going to be individual prayers that I'm going to guide you through. And it'll just be in your own mind. You won't say anything out loud. But I want to invite you to stand up as we pray because the Hebrew people would stand up as they prayed. And also because at the end of this prayer, we're going to go into a song. And the song's going to be part of this exercise as well as we worship together. And so I want you to be standing for that as well. And so here's what I want to do is I want to just encourage you to bow your head. Close your eyes and bow your head. And it's very hard to be still, isn't it? Especially in our minds. There's so much going on, so many distractions. It's hard for us to be still. But I want you just to take a, a, a deep breath or two. And, and let's, let's pray. And, and, and God, I'll guide us in this first part. Would you help us to focus? We want to draw near to you. We, we want to remember how close you are to us. Help us to focus. And now I'm going to just guide you with a few prompts for a minute or so. And the first thing I want you to do is just to thank God for being with you. Maybe you're not sure he's with you or you doubt he's with you or you don't think he's with you. And if that's the case, just say that to him as well. Next, I want you to think about something in your life that feels chaotic or out of control. Something that's been a struggle for you lately. It, it feels a little bit like the trouble. 
And I want you to just talk to God about that in, in this moment. And of course, he already knows all about it, obviously. But take a minute to describe the situation to him. He wants to hear you talk about it. Tell him what it feels like to you. Talk to him about how the situation is affecting you. Maybe it's affecting you physically where you feel some physical effects like tightness in your chest or shoulders or somewhere. Maybe it's affecting you emotionally. Perhaps it's affecting you in your relationships. Maybe you've been short with your family and friends. Maybe you're up worrying at night. Maybe you're just kind of frozen in place. Just talk to him about how the situation is affecting you. Remember what be still actually means from Psalm 46, verse 10. It means to release your grip, relax your hand. And this is what God is inviting you to do this morning. So imagine yourself holding on tightly to your chaotic situation. And as you imagine that, I, I, I want to encourage you to slowly clench your fists together in, in this posture of holding on to something, this posture of grabbing and grasping onto something. And just hold that posture, just your fists clenched together tightly. As your fists are clenched, tell God what it is you're holding on to, why it's hard for you to release your grip. Now, Ask him for the very present help he promises you. Say, God, help me to release my grip. And as God increases your faith, even in these moments, as God increases your faith, I want to invite you to slowly release the tension in your hands until they're wide open. And we're going to worship God in this posture. Now, you don't have to physically keep your hands open if you don't want to, but I, I'd invite you to. Whether you have your physical hands open or not, may this be the posture of our hearts as we worship God together through this song. You can open your eyes if you'd like to as we worship, and our band will lead us.